so today I want to talk about the story of the two disciples on the Emmaus Road and the resurrection encounter that they had with Jesus. And the reason I was talking about this today is it was about three months or so ago that Rob asked me to preach on this Sunday. And I didn't really know what I wanted to talk about. But then we were at the Catalyst Festival, and on Saturday night, when we were singing that song by Delirious, which goes, My Heart Burns For You, God suddenly put it on my heart that that is what he wanted me to talk about this week. So, didn't know what he wanted me to say, but I thought, well, let's go with it, as you do. So, that is when my mind then turned to this passage in Scripture, where we've got that verse, Did not our hearts burn within us, as he explained the Scriptures to us on the road? So the title of what I'm going to talk about today is Truth, Hope and Adventure. Because when I've been reading this story, that is just such a clear pattern that I've seen. Truth, hope and adventure. But even running up to today, I wasn't really quite sure how this was fitting in, what God was doing with us, what he was doing with us as a church. Um, Until a few weeks ago, I'm talking to John Marshall and I was telling him my thoughts about what I was preaching on today. And he said, oh, isn't that a fantastic follow-up to the thing you preached on a few months ago, on loving God's word? And I was like, I suppose it is. Yes, that that was the plan all along. Fantastic. And then just a couple of weeks ago, I was speaking to Rob. And he was saying, well, isn't that just a brilliant follow-on from extravagant worship, kind of our hearts responding to God? And again, I was like, oh, wow, God really does know what he's doing with this stuff. And then just in the worship, um, I I hadn't spoken to Tim, I promise. And then we were singing at the end. Um, set a fire down in my soul and I want a heart that burns for God and that was just like that was just like the final affirmation that I think this is definitely what God wants me to speak about today Um, so if you've got a Bible with you might be helpful if you turn to Luke 24 Luke chapter 24 because what I want to do is just go through the story and try and show you some of the things that God has been showing me as I've been looking at this over the past few weeks. So I'm going to start reading from verse 13 of chapter 24, which says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. So just to put it into a bit of context, what had happened, well, immediately before this passage, Luke gives his account of the resurrection, how Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, had gone to the tomb, had found it empty, and gone back to report all of this to the disciples. And they didn't seem to quite get it initially. There was some confusion. They even said, well, it sounded a bit like nonsense, a bit of old wives' tales, and so everyone was a bit confused at this point. They, they didn't really know what was going on. They had just seen Jesus, the person who they'd been following for maybe as long as three years, be crucified. And that would have made them understandably in a lot of turmoil. But then these kind of odd rumours that he'd been risen from the dead were coming to their ears and they really didn't know what to make of it. So if we read on. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. 
Now, I was thinking at this stage, um, you probably want Jesus just to appear and you want to recognise who he was and you want him to put all of the pieces together. And it seems in a way almost a little bit kind of a little bit mean that they they had Jesus next to him and and they didn't realise it. So all of this kind of hope that they had about him, which had seemed to have disappeared, they wanted that hope back. And here Jesus is with them, but they don't recognise it. But as we're going to see, God had a plan. God had a reason why he did that, if we look on through the story. Um, So he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things there that have happened in these days? What things, he asked about Jesus of Nazareth. So yet again, of course, Jesus knows exactly what has happened, but he really wants to draw it out from the disciples. He really wants to find out what, what's their understanding, what, what do they think's gone on? What do they think about these stories of the resurrection that they're hearing? So let's look at their response. And they say to him, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see it. What I find kind of fascinating about this response is they seemed to sort of get it all, but not quite. So they perceived who Jesus was in that he was indeed mighty in word and deed. But they still thought of him as just a prophet. They hadn't quite got that he was, in fact, the Christ. They hadn't quite got that he was the saviour of the world. And likewise, their hope was in him as the Messiah. But their hope was in him as the Messiah of Israel. Again, they hadn't put together the fact that he was actually the saviour of the whole world. And he was kind of fulfilling, but going beyond all of those promises made to Israel. And then they, they heard about the resurrection, but they weren't quite sure what to make of it. They, they couldn't put it together. They couldn't put it together with all the things that Jesus had been saying and all the things they'd known from the past. So they're kind of almost there, but not quite. And this is why I think Jesus appears to them. Because we don't know much about Cleopas, and we don't even know the name of the other disciple. Some people think it might have been Cleopas's wife. Other people just think another follower. We're not really sure, but they're not, to put it this way, they're not kind of superstars of scripture. They're not people that we learn a lot more about or learn um, what part they play in the kingdom. Um, Yet Jesus thought it was the right thing to do on one of the kind of most extensive resurrection experiences to appear to them and reveal this truth to them. Um, which it just shows that God will use whoever to establish his purpose. And as we go on, it was because of what Jesus revealed to these guys that the whole church ended up believing and being convinced of the resurrection. So they've described what they know to Jesus, 
And at this stage, surely you think Jesus is going to reveal himself. Surely you think Jesus is going to say, yes, it's me, I'm risen, here I am. But no, actually, he, he rebukes them quite strongly at this point. If you look at verse 25, he says, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things, and then enter into his glory? So again, in this place of kind of emotional turmoil, uncertainty, you think, okay, Jesus, just put them out of their misery, put them out of their suspense, show them who you are, and then you can all go and start the whole church New Testament thing. But no, Jesus keeps on pushing, he keeps on challenging them. And he says, have you not understood? Do you not get that all of this is fulfilling the prophets and the scriptures? And then my favourite verse of this whole story is verse 27 which says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of Scripture concerning himself. And this is just, for me, mind-blowing. Jesus is giving a personal one-to-one Bible study about himself. Like, how incredible would it have been to have heard what he said about himself from the Scriptures as he walked along that road? And as I was thinking about this, I was just trying to imagine what it might have been that he said to them. He says he talks about Moses. Did he talk about the great leading of Israel out of Egypt and how he was the Passover lamb and how he was the redemption from the world? Did he talk about the giving of the Torah and the giving of the law and how actually all of those hopes of a promised land were fulfilled in him? And then the deliverance of the promised land to Joshua and how that was fulfilled in him. And then it says he talked about all of the prophets, all of the prophets. And I can imagine him talking about Isaiah and the government being upon the shoulders and about Isaiah 53, how one would come to be wounded for our transgressions, to bear our iniquities. But what did Jesus say about himself from Habakkuk? What did Jesus say about himself from Nahum? I think it would just be the most incredible, incredible thing to hear exactly what Jesus said to them. But that, again, is something that we can explore ourselves. That is an adventure that we can go on and ask Jesus to show himself in every single passage of Scripture, in every single promise made in the Old Testament, to see how that's fulfilled in him. And when we see what happens later on in the story, we kind of see this being convinced about what was true, what had actually happened, what the facts were about his identity, his death and his resurrection. That was absolutely fundamental to the change we then saw in these two disciples. So that is verse 27. If we read on, it says, As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. So at this point, I think the disciples know that actually this stranger they've met on the road is really onto something. I think they've, they've almost got it at this point. And from having just bumped into a guy on the road, they are now urging him strongly, stay with us, we want to hear more, we want to really get this. And if we read on, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognised him and he disappeared from their sight. 
And there's almost a sense of relief at this point. They've realised it is Jesus. He is risen. And kind of that final moment of recognition, that came as they were essentially having communion with Jesus. Not very many days before, when he was having the Last Supper with his disciples, Jesus had instituted one of only two things that he prescribes that we do as a church. Jesus has only ever told the church specifically to do two things, and that is to baptise and to take communion in remembrance of him. And now we see the first, the first communion in history after his resurrection was served by the Lord Jesus himself, and it was served to these two disciples. So after what must have been in some ways quite a harrowing experience of being challenged on everything that's going on, this man, they came up to him, they didn't even know if he was a friend or an enemy of Jesus. And now suddenly they being served communion by the Lord himself. And in that moment, that's a mark of being accepted into the kingdom, of being accepted into fellowship. And they got it. They saw who Jesus was. Then you feel it's a bit unfair in a way. Jesus immediately disappears from them. They suddenly get it. They suddenly realise who they are in the company of. And Jesus disappears. So what did this kind of recognition lead to? What did this understanding of all that had been promised in history and all that had gone on, what did it all lead to? Well, at this point, we get to verse 32, which was the verse um, that God originally put on my heart to speak on. And it says, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures? I just wanted to step out of the narrative for a bit and just think about what it means. Because I was having a look around at the Bible for other times this kind of reaction is talked about. And actually, it isn't really talked about anywhere else. This is the only place in scripture where we find someone describing having a burning heart or a heart on fire for the Lord. And it's language that we use ourselves quite a lot. And I think that's right and I think it's good. But the fact that it only appears in here in Scripture makes me think that this is actually something really significant about this passage that we want to kind of get underneath and explore. So what exactly is this kind of burning heart that they are experiencing? Well, I'd like to suggest that it's a combination of two things. I'd like to suggest it's a combination of hope and of passion. I think it's hope because of everything we've just looked at, this kind of journey through scripture that they went on, this hope that they'd lost when they saw Jesus crucified, this hope that they clearly wanted but seemed in confusion following the resurrection rumours, and then suddenly getting this enlightenment, having met with Jesus. I think that hope must have just been absolutely reignited like it had never been before in their hearts. So I think... This hope is an essential element. And it's not just kind of a hope in a sense of, well, maybe things will get better for us. Maybe things will turn all right, all right for us. It's a kind of life-changing hope. It's a kind of seeing the big picture of absolutely everything. God, the universe, time, our own place. They suddenly all saw that and did see that everything that God had promised, all of the good things, things of eternal life and of fellowship. Actually, these were certainties that were going to happen. These were certainties that were going to happen for them. And that kind of all-life-encompassing, life-empowering hope 
they suddenly got in this moment. But as we're going to go on to look at, it didn't just stop with this kind of emotion and this kind of almost relief and this kind of meaning. They went on to do things. They went on to action. It was a hope that kind of drove them on. And I think that's where the passion came in. Because it was a, it was a hope that they couldn't contain. It was a hope that they couldn't just be something for themselves and that was that. It was a hope that they had to do something with. And having met with Jesus, they just had to tell others about it. They had this passion in their heart. So as we go on through the stories, I'm going to talk about a passionate hope. And that's what I think uh, we're really looking at when we think about having hearts that burn for God. And towards the end, I'm going to think, going to try and think of how we can tap into that. How can we kind of get hold of this life-changing, passionate hope that the disciples in this story experienced? So the truth they had led to hope, led to passionate hope even. And then what did this hope lead to? Well, if we read on, verse 33 says, They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. Then the two told them what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. So these two disciples previously, they were coming to the end of the day. It was getting dark. They were going to put their feet up and rest from the night. And suddenly, we've got them. I see them sprinting back to Jerusalem in the dark. They just had to get back to the rest of the disciples. They had to do something with this incredible revelation they'd been given. They were suddenly on a new adventure in life. Their life had purpose. The details of their life mattered because they'd encountered Jesus. They'd encountered the promises of his kingdom. They encountered the big picture of what God was doing. And they started this adventure. And as I say, we don't hear a lot more about the personal adventure of Cleopas and the other disciples in Scripture. But what we do see in the rest of the New Testament is the start of the adventure of the church, the start of the adventure of God's kingdom really coming on earth. We see the disciples gathering strength in Jerusalem. We see of the Holy Spirit coming down and empowering the church to be everything that Jesus was calling it to be. We saw the church go out through the story of Acts all over the Roman world. We saw how the early church developed and all of the letters that Paul and others wrote to encourage them. And we see from nothing this explosion of life, this explosion of worship, this explosion of teaching happening. And that was the incredible adventure that started when Jesus rose from the dead. And it's adventure that carries on today, and it's adventure that we are all caught up in. It's an adventure that we collectively, as a church, are caught up in. God has purposes for us. God has reasons for us being here. God has reasons for us to get excited. And it's true on an individual level as well. Just as these two disciples had an absolutely unique role to play in this unfolding drama of the church, even though they may have been slightly unlikely candidates, and from the human eye you couldn't see, well, why did Jesus come to them rather than maybe some of his closer disciples? Just like them, God has got a unique and an individual adventure for each one of us to live out. 
And we can live out that adventure in confidence if we know the truth of God and if we know this hope that that gives us. And as I was looking through this, that was just the pattern that really stuck out for me. It was the thing that I couldn't shake off, this idea of truth and hope and adventure. So I just want to spend a little bit of time kind of exploring in a bit more depth. What does that mean for us? How can we get hold of that? How can we turn that into nice ideas, into actual encounters with God and into how we live our lives? I think the first thing that I really wanted to bring forward from this is the importance of hope in our lives and the importance of hope in our heart. As I said, hope isn't just a soft thing for those hard moments or something to rely on when nothing else seems possible. Hope is the whole orientation of our hearts. It's the whole orientation of our mind. It's the whole orientation of, well, what what do we think about? What do we look for? What do we aim for? when we wake up in the morning? What are we driven by? Are we driven by just a desire to get through the day? Are we driven by a desire just to see what happens? Or do we have a hope that's driving us? And certainly when I've been thinking about this, it's been quite a hard thing to reflect on. Because like all emotions and all experiences, certainly for me, hope is something that I feel in waves. It's not always there. It comes and goes, depending on circumstances. But I think that there's a hope that runs deeper than just how we're feeling. I think there's a hope from comes to God which goes beyond our emotions. And although we often do, and we, um, it's a good thing that we do have a kind of emotional reaction from hope, it's actually something deeper than that. It's something kind of that, that cannot be taken away, however hard things get. It's something that is ultimately from God and not from ourselves. And our hope is something that we can always look to God for, even when we're in kind of the deepest despair at our own selves. So kind of connecting to this hope in the good times, in the bad times, that is the real kind of thing that really shone out to me when I was reflecting on this. But kind of I put hope in the middle of that kind of chain of truth, hope and adventure. And I think if we, if we miss out any one of those three bits of the chain, then the other bits become unbalanced. Because if we're hoping, if we're trusting, if we're really driving for something, but it doesn't have a foundation, if it doesn't have truth of what reality actually is and what God actually is underneath it, it's likely to come unstuck. But likewise, if we don't, um, if we just focus on hope and not on adventure, then it, it kind of becomes stale. We don't do anything with it. It's, it stays on the inside and it doesn't have the kind of results and action that God expects it to have. And I think that's one of the big passages when, sorry, one of the big themes when you read passages in both the Gospels and the letters of the New Testament. It's both Jesus and Paul. They tell you truth, but they expect to see action as a result from it. And not a kind of, oh, I'm being told to do this, but this is the truth, therefore. It's, it, it's, a, it's a reaction. So if we kind of have any of those elements 
um, kind of unbalanced or missing, then the others go wrong. And likewise, if we kind of over-focus on any one of those elements, um, we can run into trouble. So if we only focus on truth, if we only focus on kind of correct understanding, we can start kind of functionally, and we wouldn't ever actually think this, but kind of in reality we can start to trust on maybe our doctrinal understanding for our salvation if we just focus on truth. Or if we just focus on hope, maybe in reality we just trust on our emotions and what we're feeling about with God on our salvation. Or if we just trust on adventure or action, then we can easily get into a kind of a legalism where if we're not seeing ourselves doing loads of things, we start to think, oh, well, am I really doing okay with God? And so kind of either neglecting or overemphasizing any one of these three things um, can lead to trouble. So kind of in our own walks with God, our own devotional life, but also in our corporate life, the real kind of challenge for me from this passage is, well, how are we doing with each of these things? How are we doing with our theology? How clear are we about the truth? Is it something we pay attention to? Is it something that we think it's worth spending time on, really getting to grips with Scripture, really getting to grips with this big picture and kind of it being a daily reality for us? How are we doing with hope? How are we doing with taking those big truths and really letting them sink into our hearts and letting them drive us? How are we doing with really staking our all on God and not on ourselves? And then adventure. How, how are we responding? Are, are we really doing the things that um, God wants us to be doing? Are there some things maybe that aren't in our adventure that we're wrongly pursuing? Are there some things that God has called us to that we're not doing right now? What's my, what's my kind of response for this? And really, that is all I wanted to share with you today. This, this big idea of truth, hope and adventure and how, as we saw it for these disciples on the Emmaus Road, it's an issue that is for us today. It's an issue for us as individuals. It's a pattern for us as a church. I really, really want to have a heart that burns for God. I really, really want to have this strong passion and this strong hope within me. I want this kind of thing driving my life that is bigger than myself, that is from the Lord Jesus. And I've become convinced that the way to do that is not to work myself up into some emotion that isn't otherwise there. It's not to suddenly go out and do everything without actually standing back and reflecting. No, the path to this burning heart, the path to this passion, is to dwell in the truth, to love it, to reflect on it, and to let that drive me to action to let God be my adventure, to let God be my purpose, to let God be my hope.